you guys are going to hate this sermon. It's not my fault. I'm sorry. It's, this is a book. It's three chapters of almost entirely judgment and wrath. And it was assigned to me by Zach Van Dyke. So you can send him your mail. Um, but we, we, we have to talk about it, right? We have to talk about it because if we don't, we are in danger, I think, of kind of chopsticking qualities of the divine that we do like until we are left with a God who may be very easy to live with, but probably doesn't exist. So we have to talk about it. But after this, you can maybe go listen to some of the Galatian series as like a palate cleanser. I want to talk about sugar. It's the worst. Sugar causes the release of dopamine, right? And there are theories about why this is. Uh, One of them is that our bodies have been designed to seek out high-calorie foods because we kind of started out as hunter-gatherers and, and vegetables aren't particularly calorie-dense and meat was hit or miss, literally. And so, so sugar, when we would find it in nature, was very helpful for people who spent their days looking for food. It was high-calorie and therefore our, our bodies, the, the theory goes, de- developed a mechanism to reward us for finding fruit and berries and such. It would release this dopamine when we bit into the sugar and that was a chemical reward and it made us feel good emotionally and that's kind of how we started to do that as a survival tactic. However, fast forward to today, and while nature had made sugar very challenging to find, man has made it shamefully easy. I mean, I think it's actually harder to avoid sugar now than it is to find it. If if you've done any of Whole30, any of the diets or anything, you know this, you read the labels, right? And and there's sugar hidden in everything. It's ubiquitous. It's, it's, it's everywhere. We can't get away. Even stuff that, that you don't think of as sweet, right? Like crackers and bread and ketchup. Don't even get me started on Chick-fil-A sauce, y'all. It's a packet the size of a Jolly Rancher, 140 calories. And, and, and the breading, right? The breading on the nuggets. Despite what I used to believe, they have not been sprinkled with the dust of a thousand fairies. It's just sugar. It's sugar in the breading. It's in everything. The daily recommendation, by the way, is not more than six added teaspoons of sugar. For reference, a can of soda has eight. So if you are using that can of soda to wash down your you know, meal of summer hot dogs on sugar-filled buns with a side of sugar-filled baked beans, might as well bust out the insulin because we are already over the limit. But here's the real sinister part. Let's say you eat that cinnamon sugar Valhalla bakery donut uh, at the graduation. <laughs> You know you shouldn't, but you do. And, and you only need to eat half of it because they are enormous. But then you start, you start eating it, and it's just so good that you just accidentally finish the whole thing. And then you feel bad, right? You feel bad that you ate the whole thing. Do you know what makes you feel better when you feel bad? Big shot of dopamine, that's right. So you fix your guilt problem by eating another donut. This is all hypothetical. I mean, I, I'm joking, but, but this cycle is such, such, a, such a reality of the standard American diet. The, the acronym for that is SAD, by the way. It's such a reality of the standard American diet that, that doctors are calling sugar the new smoking, and they're demonstrating in lab tests that it has you know, addictive properties similar to that in cocaine. Um, it's, it's a vicious cycle. You, you eat the sugar, you want more sugar, you eat the sugar, you want more sugar, and it perpetuates itself. The cycle continues to build on itself. This morning, we're going to be talking quite a bit about cycles that build on themselves. We're going to be talking about the cycles of God's history with his people. We're going to be talking about the cycle of God's history with us. And we're going to be looking um, at the book of Zephaniah, as was mentioned earlier. But we're coming near to the end of this Minor Prophets series. And so as we approach the end of the series, what I really want to do today is to look at the, the bigger picture, kind of the, the grand narrative that we've seen kind of painted throughout this series. We're going to put a slide up here for you. Zephaniah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah. Uh, if you'll remember, the, the kingdom of Israel was one kingdom, and then it split to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. 
And we've studied all of these prophets, these prophets who have come and they've come to warn God's people to, to, to move away from their wickedness to the north, to the south, um, even, even way up north in Assyria and Nineveh. We've, we've seen prophets come to those folks too. Those are the folks who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and God still sends them prophets. And, and, and the people repent. That's the thing. We see the people repent often actually, but then eventually over time, they get back up to their old tricks and then sometimes God will send another prophet. Zephaniah is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah um, after the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722, but before Judah's own fall to Babylon in 586. And so Judah, despite seeing, despite witnessing the fall of the northern kingdom, and despite uh, all of these other prophets who have come to, to warn them to move away from their wickedness, we see that Judah has in fact gotten back up to her old tricks. And, and they're paying lip service to God. They are bowing down to God Almighty. But we see in the text that they are also bowing down to Molech, a God who, who demands child sacrifice. And they're, and they're bowing down to the starry host of heaven. They're worshiping the stars. And so Zephaniah shows up and he has some pretty terrifying things to say to the people. This is not in your bulletin. So just listen as I read. This is Zephaniah chapter one, verse 17. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Now, I've never personally had my entrails poured out like dung, um, but it doesn't sound like a slap on the wrist. I mean, God is preparing to pour out the fire of his wrath on Judah, on Assyria, on the, on the kingdoms of the north, south, east, and west, and ultimately onto the whole earth. What on earth made God this angry? Literally, what on earth has brought God to the point of saying he will make a terrifying end to all mankind? I think the wrath of God is one of the most challenging things that we will encounter in our faith. I'm not gonna be able to resolve that for you today, but, but we cannot read the Bible without reckoning with it. And so my hope for this sermon, I think, is that it's just a, a jumping off point for you to begin to wrestle with that concept um, in prayer with God as I've often had to do myself. What, what on earth makes God so mad? We're gonna take a few minutes now and we're gonna review God's history with his people. And I know this will be riveting to five of you, but you gotta stick with me because this is important stuff. And the reason it's important is because we can't make sense of, of events, of people, of motivations. We can't make sense of these things unless we are dealing with kind of the, the whole story. We need the background. I was babysitting my, my nephews a few years back, Austin and Aiden, and Austin, he's probably four at the time and he's your typical first child, thoughtful, sweet, responsible. And um, Aiden, in addition to being two at the time, was just a, just a tiny monster. I mean, if he could bite you, he would. If he could grab you, he would. Um, none of this won him the benefit of the doubt. And so one day around lunchtime, I'm babysitting them, and Austin comes running into the kitchen crying, and, and he tells me that Aiden has eaten his moon pie. So I walk out into the dining room, and there's Aiden, sure enough, in his high chair, face covered in marshmallow, hoarding his crumbs like Gollum, my precious, you know, and, and Austin is just bawling. And, He's like, see? I'm like, okay, buddy. So I take him to the kitchen. I get him a new moon pie. I'm like, it's all right. We'll just get you a new moon pie. So he's eating his moon pie, still crying. <laughs> and then I just ask him out of curiosity, hey, how, how did Aiden get your moon pie anyway? And the crying <laughs> stops. And he's like, it was on his tray. And I was like, oh, okay, buddy. And, and how, how did it get on his tray? I had put it there. I was like, okay, well, wh why did you put it there? Because he traded me for his fruit 
fruit snacks, but then I decided I didn't want to trade anymore. I didn't want to trade. I was like, okay, it's okay. At what point did you decide that you didn't want to trade anymore? After I had ate the fruit snacks, I got swindled out of a moon pie, guys, because I wasn't working with the full story. We need the full story. We can't understand anything unless we have the full story. And to understand something so big is the wrath of God. I mean, we'll never fully understand it, but, but we will grossly misunderstand it if we're not working with the full story. So we're going to take a look at that story. If you heard my sermon on Haggai, this would be a bit of a refresher for you, but again, it's just that important. So sorry, not sorry. In the beginning... God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them this beautiful creation to live in and to to tend to. And there was only one stipulation, just this one rule, don't do this one thing. But the devil came and he tempted them to do that one thing, and and they, they took the bait. And as a result of that disobedience, as a result of that sin, suffering and death entered into the good creation. The creation itself became bent. Things hurt that didn't hurt before. They bled, they got cold. But even in the midst of their rebellion, God still chooses to provide for them. He, he makes warm clothing for them to wear. He doesn't destroy them, he saves them from destruction and he hopes that the pain of this fall will drive them away from the sin that is now killing them and back to his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. But then Cain is born. And his brother Abel and Cain murders him in jealousy and, and, and the people continue to get so wicked that by the time of Noah, God is grieved that he ever created man. And so in an effort to, to stem the spreading of evil across the whole earth, God takes good Noah and his family, puts him in the boat and the animals in their pairs and the, and the whole world floods. But God saves the remnant and he hopes that the pain of this experience will drive them away from, from the sin that is now killing them and back to his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. But then the remnant repopulates the earth and, 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 and even these new people have such a hard time living with God, their creator, because they keep doing different versions of that one thing and becoming increasingly more wicked and violent. And so God, in, a, in an effort to, to bring the people back to himself, instead of wiping them out entirely, God chooses the nation of Israel to act as his, his to, to lead them by example, to act as his display people. He wants them to live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that, that they'd be so good to each other that the rest of the world will see them and they'll want to know the God that they live that way for. But even Israel can't fulfill the mission. She starts doing different versions of that one thing and, and, and they continue to become violent and wicked and, 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 and God is warning them through the voice of the prophets, please turn away from this, this violence, this wickedness. I'm gonna have to intervene if you don't, but they ignore the voice of the prophets. And so God allows the Northern kingdom of Israel to fall to Assyria in 722 BC and, and, and the people are carried away in exile. Now, why does he do this? Now listen, because this is important. We think of this as only punitive, but it's not. It's more complex than that because God is more complex than that. We have to keep in mind, Israel had this mission, right? Live, live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the rest of the world, they look at you, they wanna know the God that you live that way for. If Israel no longer had those qualities, she couldn't fulfill her mission because it, it was her love, her obedience, her, her goodness that, that, that set her apart enough from the rest of the world to turn anybody's head toward God. So when they lost 
those qualities, they, they were no longer any help to anyone, including themselves. And so God, God, and this is important, God in his grace, God in his grace to all the people to whom Israel was supposed to demonstrate his love, God allows the northern kingdom to fall, but he saves the remnant in Judah. And he hopes that the pain of that experience will turn them away from the sin that's killing him and drive them back to his goodness and grace. And it works for a while. Do you see the cycle now? God creates the world good, but men go in search of many schemes. And God, God, God convicts the people, he disciplines the people, repent, but men go in search of many schemes. And then God disciplines again, and the people repent again, but men go in search of many schemes. I mean, look at this timeline. Let's put the timeline up again. Even Nineveh in Assyria, it's, it's a microcosm of this cycle. Jonah comes, 755, and he prophesies to them. He says, you've got to change your ways. And the people repent wholeheartedly. You've seen Jonah and the Waybreakers, I assume. They, they change their ways entirely. But then Zephaniah is here 120 years later, and, and he says, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Nineveh falls in 612, and they repented, truly, sincerely, until they didn't anymore. Do you see the cycle? This, this cycle is what has brought God to the precipice of wrath. What makes him so angry? I'll tell you, it's, it's the cries of little children being burnt in the fire to Molech. It's the blood of a 17-year-old black boy lynched in front of City Hall. It's, it's the smell of flesh from the killing fields of Cambodia. It's the tears of an eight-year-old girl the first time a grown man walks into her room at the brothel where she's been trafficked. These are not caricatures. These are real human beings. And their cries and their smells and their blood rise up to God Almighty year after year, cycle after cycle. And then it's not so hard to see why God is poised to pour out his wrath on all mankind. And then we cry out in the voice of our father, Adam, but I didn't do it. Guys, why do we live and die by comparison in this culture? It is killing us. It's a trick because it makes us feel so much better than we actually are. I mean, that's what makes the gospel so offensive, right? It's like, well, I, you know, I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad, right? I mean, I'm not like a Nazi. So it's, you know, it's just porn. It's just a little greed. It's just a little anger. It's just a little acting out. You know, I can, I can end the affair if I want to. I can stop if I have to. But, but even if I can't, surely that's not worthy of having my entrails poured out like dung, right? I'm not that bad, right, guys? That is a narrow view of sin. We're being duped. Here's an example that you guys will hate me for, but might as well get it out of the way in the Zephaniah sermon. You know, the, the, the real sin, the true sin is that we think our way is better than God's way. We think our timing is better than his timing. I, I know from our marriage prep survey data that half the folks in here in serious relationships are living with someone who's not your spouse. And for a percentage of you, that's your mom, and that's okay. <laughs> 
And to be very clear, I am not judging you. I'm not judging you because I walked this path myself before I came to Summit. And I was already a Christian. Like, I didn't have a good excuse. I know I know how we get here. I know the objections. You know, it's, it's, it's too expensive to live alone in Orlando. Uh, we're, we're getting married. We're in love. This is a personal decision. You know, we're not hurting anybody. And, and honestly, I'm not even talking about morality. So, so don't tune me out because you think I'm going to guilt you with my antiquated 1950s theology. My point is not so much that you should move out just because God wants you to, though spoiler alert, he does. And my, and my point is not so much that if you don't move out, he's not going to love you because yes, of course, God will still love you. My point is that we should not make important choices with bad information. I mean, we, we believe our way is better than God's way. Guys, that's bad information. It's the same lie that took in Adam and Eve in the beginning. This, this way is better than God's way. He's, he's holding out goodness from me. It's a lie. It, because listen, it's not even really whether about the thing itself is, is, is bad or causes harm. I mean, sex isn't evil, but, but, but neither was the forbidden fruit. The fruit wasn't bad. The fruit was good. The, the, the fruit was good. It was, it was good for, it was delicious. It was good for acquiring knowledge. The fruit wasn't bad. It was the taking that caused the fall. The taking of a, of a right thing in a wrong way. The fruit didn't cause the fall. It, it was the untimely bite that did it. What the fruit was had nothing to do with it. Sex isn't bad. Sex is great. It's one of God's gifts. But, but like all of God's gifts, it's meant to be taken in the way prescribed. And when we start to take it outside of those boundaries, that untimely bite does damage. It is hurting somebody. And on a personal note, you know, ladies, I'm just talking to you now. I, I understand your fear. I understand what it's like to feel, you know, like you're always going to be alone. I've been there. I don't want that for you. But listen, if it's possible, he will move on simply because you move out. Don't you want to know that before you take your vows? It is hurting somebody. Don't be okay with that just because that somebody is you. And guys... You know, I'm not a man. I can't speak to what your motivation is. I don't want to insult you by assuming, but what I will say to you is this. Please, please don't leave us to guard our hearts alone. Eve took that bite while a silent Adam stood by and watched. Speak up. Please speak up and tell her she's worth waiting for. Protect her the way that you were designed by God to do. Recently, my house was covered in poop. Wasn't mine. I was sitting on the couch in the living room and I was prepping for a rear talk that I had to give that evening and I started smelling poop and I looked down and there are poopy smears all over my floor and I was like, oh, okay, someone must have tracked this in. So I go, I hit it with the Lysol, wipe it up, no harm, no foul. Then a few minutes later, there are new poop smears. And I'm like, hmm, did I miss these? Did, how is that possible? And then my dog Ramses runs by and he's leaving poopy footprints behind him. I, okay, I see what's happening here. So I take him outside. He had stepped in poop, but it got kind of like shoved up into the pad of his paw. So I'm, you know, basically pressure washing that out with my hose. It was disgusting. So I leave him outside. I go back in. I wipe up the new poop smears. We're good to go. Then I sit down to prep my talk again. And then a few minutes later, I'm, I'm smelling poop again. And I'm like, is it, 
is it in my head now? Is it phantom poop? Or, you know, am I pregnant? Am I smelling poop two houses down? Like, what is happening? And just then my daughter uh, runs by chasing a beach ball, and she's leaving poopy pity footprints all over the house. And I'm, so I'm like, okay, this, I scoop her up. Sure enough, she has run through Ramsey's poop smears, and now she's making her new own poops. My whole floor has turned into some kind of unsanitary Jackson Pollock number. So I put her in the tub. And I, and I hose her down, and so I get out, I, I wipe up the poop smears, and I think this is all, we're done. And then moments later, there's new poop on my floor. And I'm like, okay, what is, I've just spent an hour now hunting and cleaning poop in my own home. I don't know where it's, if I don't walk out this door in five minutes, I'm going to be late for regroup. Where is it coming from? I'm tired, I'm done. I'm done cleaning poop on other humans and animals. And then I realize it's, it's on me. It's on me, isn't it? And then just then Rob walks in the door and I just start crying. And he's like, what's the matter? I'm like, there's poop everywhere. There's poop everywhere. I don't even know whose it is anymore. (laughs) Some sins may be personal, but they can never, ever be private. Because sin is sticky. It gets all over everybody. You can't keep it to yourself. Even your most personal sins will affect other people because of how those sins affect you. Your poo will get on other people even if you're not the one who tracked it in the house. That is why every single sin is a danger to us and to the kingdom of God. Some of them, of course, have more extreme consequences in the present, of course they do, but but they all have extreme consequences in eternity. Because they all chip away, little by little, at our trust in the God who saves us. And they reinforce this, this absurd, naive belief that our defiance will bring about our good. Every sin does this, every single one, which is why it's not good enough just to be a little bit better. It's not good enough to just not murder and not rape. It's, it's not good enough to just avoid the worst of the sins. We have to fight against the least of them as well because I promise you they are all fighting to make the same horrific end of us. When the British crown colonized India, the, the British officials felt like there were too many wild cobras roaming the streets of Delhi and so they instituted this incentive program whereby the people of Delhi could catch the snakes and kill them. They'd bring them to the British and they would get paid per dead snake. And at first it worked beautifully. The people killed the snakes, they, they brought them to the British, they got paid. But then the number of cobras available for killing started to decrease, right? And so then some entrepreneurial young folks said, you know, we could, we could just, we could breed our own cobras, right? And kill those. <laughs> no one will know. Uh, and so they started doing that and taking them to the British and getting paid. And eventually the British got wind of it. They, they discontinued the program at which point all of the breeders then just released their worthless cobras into the streets of Delhi, making the problem far worse. Um, You may have heard John Parker, our lead pastor, talk about his annual python hunt to the Everglades. My husband sometimes accompanies him. And this past year, I started reading about snake hunting in the Everglades. And as it turns out, not only did they allow volunteer snake hunters on the grounds because they're trying to get rid of the invasive Burmese python, but they also, in 2017, instituted a python removal program whereby you can apply to become a python removal agent, and guess what? They get paid by the hour for up to 10 hours a day, and then they get an extra 50 bucks for every snake that they kill, and then they get an extra $200 if that snake happened to be guarding a nest. Now, if only there were a way 
for me to make sure there's a steady stream of pythons in the Everglades so that I could continue to get paid. Guys, it is tragically human that we repeat even the history we already know about. We're not actually that good at learning from the mistakes of others. Judah saw Israel fall, and yet they followed in those footsteps. They repeated the cycle again. So no, we may not have lit the fire to Molech. We may not have pulled the trigger. We may not have taken that first bite. We may not have done it ourselves, but all sin works together toward the death of those he loves. The line between good and evil, it's, it's not drawn between people who go to church and people who traffic children for a living. The, the line between good, it's not drawn between them and us. The line between good and evil is drawn right through the center of them and us. Right through the middle of every human heart. And so the cycle plays out over and over again, not just in God's history with his people, but in our hearts every single day. Will we trust him? Or will we go in search of many schemes? I, I know it's hard to remember that God is active. I know it's hard to remember he's good. When we suffer, when we're lonely, we feel like there's these things that we want that seem forever out of reach. And it's like so much of my sinning could be avoided if God just wasn't so slow to act. But then, you know, we, we read these prophets and by the end of the Old Testament, by Malachi, we see that the people have completed yet another cycle of wickedness and discipline and repentance and wickedness again after everything, after God's goodness, after his patience, after blessing upon blessing that they actually lived to see. They're right back where they started. Guys, if God acted quickly, that act would certainly have to be a sudden and terrifying end to all mankind. We must not mistake his patience for impotence. This is what on earth makes God so angry. Not that we never learn, but that we do learn. We do it anyway. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world, will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. But then listen here, listen to verse 9 very closely. Then I will purify the lips of the people, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. On that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters but I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. In verse eight, God sits poised to pour out his wrath on all mankind and we know why and we can't defend ourselves. But then we see this miracle in verse nine that I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call in the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. My daughter, Ember, has this teddy bear. It's, it's pink. It has a stamp on its foot that says, my first teddy. Its name is Bear. Very original. 
and she's had it since she was a baby. My mom gave it to her, um, and, and, and she, she loves this bear so much, she became immediately inseparable. Um, and, and she uses it kind of to soothe herself to sleep. So she has this ritual. She goes to bed. She tucks the bear under her arm. And then it has a tag on the bottom of it. And she starts to roll this tag between her fingers. And that, you know, tactile experience just kind of lulls her to sleep. So it's, it's not even a toy anymore. It's like a, an emotional support animal now. Um, and and she's, she's had it since she was a baby, which means, you know, that, of course, all manner of rank-smelling foulness has been spilled on this this bear, like old milk and baby vomit. I'm sure there's some poop in there. It's been dragged through the dirt. The dog gets hold of it occasionally and chews it up a little bit before she can wrestle it off him. But Ember is so attached to this bear that she would not give it up, even for the period of time it would take to run it through the washer and dry, even though it smells like death and cabbages, she will not give it up. So Rob gets this brilliant idea. We're gonna get her a new bear. It's gonna be the same bear. So he goes on Amazon, finds the same one, pink bear, same my first teddy stamp, orders it, and it comes in the mail. And then Rob proceeds to condition the bear, you know, by rubbing it in dirt and smearing yogurt on it and such and until it smelled and looked just like the original bear, Bear Prime. And then that night, he takes the bears and he swaps them out so we can wash the other one. And Ember goes to bed. She suspects nothing. You know, it smells. It looks like the real bear. So she lays down with it, and she does her little ritual. She tucks it in her arm, starts to roll that tag between her fingers, and then she sits up suddenly and goes, this is not my bear. You know, the, the tag, the tag. It was a different size or shape or texture. And it, but we're busted because of the tag, really. And then, of course, she doesn't want to give up the old bear or the new bear. So now she's just laying in bed with two smelly, you know, sacks of germs. And, and I can't, you'd think I was asking Lord Voldemort to give up his wand just to run one of these through the washer and dryer. I didn't want to destroy the bear. I just wanted to wash it. It was super gross. The miracle of verse nine is that the, the, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is not meant to utterly destroy. It's meant to purify. God didn't want to destroy his people. He didn't want, he didn't want to destroy all that he once called good. He, want, he wants to put us through the wash so we can come out clean again. So we can be restored to our original design, our original good design, so we can stop smelling like the rank foulness of sin and death. And so he pours out the fire of his wrath over us and, and, and like gold in the fire, the dross is burned away and we come out pure. The, the best of what we are, the best of who we are, it's all still there. But we, we don't wanna give up the dross. Because, you know, we, we don't know who we are without it. We don't think we can live without it. And maybe that's part of what hell is like. This stubborn clinging to the dross in us that's being burned away. Maybe hell is God giving us exactly what we want, which is to cling forever to the sins that are holding us in the flames. The wrath of God, it's, it's not meant to keep us out of heaven. It's meant to make us fit for heaven. If we can just stop clinging. And so verse nine is a miracle because he, he says he'll leave the humble among us and that's none of us. And he says he'll remove the proud and that's all of us. And even if some of us weren't, even if we were humble and repentant, if this cycle teaches us anything, it's that we would not be so for long. But this prophet speaks of a permanent peace established between God and man. And God goes to the most extreme of measures to ensure that permanence. God is a God of justice, guys. So he is going to pour out his wrath. He has poured out his wrath 
on the wickedness of men, and he pours it out for every murder and every rape, but he also pours it out for every stolen glance, for every white lie, for every little cheat on our taxes, for every gossiping prayer request, for every bullying word, for every manipulation, for every tiny fib, and for every good and just thing that we simply failed to do, God pours out his wrath. But God is also a God of grace. And so when he poured out that wrath, he chose to pour it on himself, on Jesus Christ, his only son who lived the life we should have lived and died the death our sins deserved, so that if we put our faith in him, the cycle ends in him too. My brother Jason died an addict, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. I will die a sinner, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. You may die, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, a murderer even, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. And the cycle of that wrath ends in him too. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's what the scripture says. And that's what makes the peace so permanent, so complete, and so shocking. Because Jesus doesn't just throw himself in front of the victim to protect them from harm. He then throws himself in front of the perpetrator too. And who among us has never been the perpetrator? Do you want peace? It's here. Do you want to be forgiven? He wants to forgive you. Learn from our history. Look at all he has already forgiven in this wicked world. What have you done that he cannot repair? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that even though we have repeated the same mistakes, over and over and over again that you didn't leave us to our own devices that you didn't abandon us and that you came for us even though we didn't deserve it Lord thank you that you are so good and that you receive us not not because we deserve it not because we're so good but because you are so good Lord I pray for each heart in here, my own included, that you would allow us to be able to look at the cycles in our own lives that need to come to an end. Help us see ourselves for who we really are and see our sins for what they truly are, but that we can look at that with confidence and not with fear, God, because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ. Let us look at you and ourselves with our eyes open, Lord. And Lord, we're grateful in advance before we discover whatever it is that you want us to see because we know that we can come to your throne in confidence because your grace is sufficient. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.